Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 15. We're going to read something from there, then we're going to get back into John. Second Chronicles 15. This is, uh, I'm not going to read you this whole story. As I uh, mentioned uh, maybe last week, uh, King Asa is one of my favorite guys to preach about. He was one of the good kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he had a good long reign, and he got off to a great start. In, uh, you know, he uh, had ten years of uh, quiet in the land. He did what was good. He did what was right. He removed the idols and worshipped the Lord. And in the tenth year of his reign, there was an army from, the, from Ethiopia that came that was uh, about twice as big as his army. million-man army came toward him, and he simply prayed, God, it's, not, it's nothing for you. You don't need a large army to defeat our enemies. We put ourselves in your hands. S- prayed this great, simple, faith-filled prayer. The enemy was routed, and they go in and they plunder the camp. This is the kind of thing that happened uh, more than once, as you know, in the Old Testament. Uh, we read about one of those instances last week, although in that case it really wasn't, it, it was a little bit different the way it worked out, but God simply scared the army away. They go in, they plunder the camp, and when they come back, we'll pick this up actually in you know, 15, yeah, in verse 1. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you, while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord, God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in, but great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you, be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Now, there are principles in that speech that are quite valuable for us. And this is actually reminiscent of Joshua 1.8. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read that one verse. Joshua 1 8. I'll just read it off the screen. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It's not just a matter of reading the word, it's meditating on it, it's speaking it. Not depart from your mouth. And you do this, why? Because God rewards you for memorizing it? Because God rewards you for saying it? No, because God rewards you for doing it. And we teach ourselves and train ourselves to do it by meditating on it and speaking it. And uh, God has a plan for our success. He is invested in us, right? You you believe that, don't you? And... uh, But this idea of being forsaken by God, you know, the the principles that, again, that... uh, What was his name? Azariah? Yeah, Azariah, son of Oded. Uh, God is with you as long as you're with him. 
uh, do the right thing. There's great reward for your work. Now, as we're going to come back around to toward the end of this sermon, there is reward for our work. Uh, But this is a very Old Testament concept when he said, God is with you when you're with him. He's for you when you're for him. He will forsake you if you forsake him. I want to look a little bit tonight at how much that transfers. You know, uh, I'm not sure uh, Asa ever got completely to the point of forsaking God. He had a good, long reign. It was a long reign, and it was mostly good. He was a great king. Uh, This was, uh, as I've pointed out when I preached my Asa sermon, this is kind of, I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly a rare instance when the prophet comes out to meet the king with good news. Usually when the prophet comes out to meet the king, he's confronting him. Uh, And a lot of times it costs the prophet his freedom, sometimes maybe his life. In this case, he came out to say, Asa, you're doing great. Now keep on doing great. Strengthen your hand. And encouraged by the prophecy, he does. He redoubles his efforts. He kicks the queen mother out of her position because she refuses to give up her little uh, statue of Asherah. And, uh, I mean, he is, his heart's right. And for 25 years, there is peace in the land. He just continues to grow. He builds cities. Uh, he, you know, he does, uh, fixes up the, the storehouse, the, the treasury uh, of the temple. And then he, he didn't finish well. 25 years later, here come uh, the king of Israel. You remember, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, Israel comes and makes a move on Judah. And rather than going out and facing them like he had the Ethiopians, he, he enters into this very rash treaty with the Syrians and enlists their aid against Israel. Syria comes to the rescue. Israel is repelled. And then a prophet comes in again and tells him he shouldn't have done this. He, he rebukes him. He says, because God had a plan for Syria. God's plan for Syria was for you to destroy Syria because they're enemies of your people. But now you can't because you're in a treaty with him. You're going to have to honor that treaty, but you've missed an opportunity and you've taken yourself out of the will of God. So then he gets to this. This is the high point or low point of this speech. Verse 9 in chapter 16 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. Note that the acts of Asa, first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. Did Asa forsake God? I don't think so. I see this very, uh, quite a bit more like pouting. Maybe he's depressed, he's angry, he's offended. Uh, but I don't think he actually... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Renounced his belief in God. He took this word of the prophet as kind of the final word on his life rather than as a call to repentance, which I believe he had every opportunity to do. In fact, the language as I read it here, uh, when it talks about yet in his distress and this disease, 
uh, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. Uh, there's a strong indication, I think an inescapable conclusion, that he absolutely could have sought the Lord for healing. But he just couldn't humble himself. He's still carrying the offense from Hanani, in this case, the seer who told him he had missed it. He could have easily come back to God. But in his hurt, he just wouldn't allow himself to. But I don't think he was damned. I don't think he forsook the faith. All right? Now, there is significant theological disagreement about whether a Christian can forsake God, about whether a Christian uh, can lose their salvation. This is the issue of eternal security. And it's funny. It's, uh, it's something I used to be intensely interested in. And, and there, there are, there are more, than one, more than two schools of thought, but the main divisions are some uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. The Calvinists say you can never lose it. The Arminian says you can uh, but then both will say, they'll, they'll throw out uh, an example. Well, here's somebody I know who was a Christian, and they, they turned, from the, turned from the faith. And the Calvinists would say, well, then they were never saved in the first place. And the Arminian would say, well, he can get saved again. And so this back and forth stuff. I think, uh, I'll tell you where I land on it. I believe a Christian can. Let's, let's start with this. Scriptures tell us clearly that nothing can separate us from the love of God. All right? Nothing can, sep- can take us out of his hand. And God has told us he will never leave us or forsake us. He won't cast us out. But I still think that leaves the door open to the possibility that we can renounce him. He won't kick us out, but he won't hold us against our will. I think it has to be, I, I do not think you can sin your way out of salvation. I don't think you can accidentally lose your salvation. I think just like you get saved on purpose, you have to get unsaved on purpose. That's where I stand on it, okay? Again, Jesus himself said he would never forsake us. And I want to look at something else he said, continuing in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 8 tonight. Keep in mind what we said about Asa. There's a connection here. You might not see it right off the bat. But in John chapter 8. Now, John chapter 8 begins with what is known as the pericope adulterae, which is the isolated story of the woman caught in adultery. Let me say this. I, I, I hesitate to even say anything about it, but I just want to let you know there's two reasons why I'm skipping that tonight. One is uh, that we covered it not too long ago. I preached a sermon about this. Uh, and it's not what, there's nothing I want to skip about this story. It's a great story, uh, but it doesn't fit. It's not part of the conversation that I want to spend the time on tonight. The other thing is this. I don't know how many of you are aware of this. I relatively recently became aware of this. There's quite a bit of consensus that this, uh, the first 11 verses of John, and, uh, of John chapter 8 and the last verse of John chapter 7 actually don't belong there. Not that if this story didn't happen, not that they aren't part of the gospel at large, but that John didn't write them, and if he did, he didn't write them here because it kind of doesn't fit with where we're at in the story. And there's all sorts of reasons. I'm not a Greek scholar, but you read, and we're talking conservative scholars. I'm not talking about the, the, uh, oh, the historical Jesus society or anything like that. We're talking conservative 
uh, Bible-believing scholars who say there's the language in this, there are words that, are, that John never, ever uses in this or any of his letters. The, the consensus seems to be that it does belong in the Bible. Most people believe Luke wrote it. Again, most people who, who's, who've made a, a, a job of studying this stuff, that it might have been Luke, of course, the historian, the way they would, uh, just like somebody would sit down to write a biography or a book today, you get all your notes together, then you sit down to write them, and somebody actually measured it that the, the Gospel of Luke actually fit on what was a standard-sized scroll back then. So he had to edit some things to make sure that everything he wrote would fit. And somebody came across this story of Luke's, and we're talking early on. The only reason there's doubt on this, and it's significant doubt, is the three most authoritative and oldest manuscripts don't include it. But practically all the later ones do. So again, there was broad consensus that this, this happened, that it belonged in the Bible. They just didn't know where to put it. So somebody plugged it in here, okay? Don't let it shake you. It's a great story, absolutely scriptural. Believe it's of God. We're skipping it tonight because I want to get back into his conversation with the Pharisees, okay? Now, please silence all electronics, Beth. <laughs> oh, man. We went to a concert last Saturday. Went and heard the other guys over at Craner. And it's this great, and it's packed house. And, of course, if you've been to Craner, the acoustics are great, right? And... Uh, and, but they, it's, it's a cappella. It's not like it's a really noisy concert. And they do some quiet songs. And this lady, who was that? Was she a professor? Was she sat right next to Ant? And uh, her phone went off. One of those uh, alarms that, I don't know if they all sound the same, but it sounds just like my alarm that wakes me up on my phone. And this thing started to go off. And she shut it off and stuffed it in her purse. And she's shaking. You can tell it really shook her. And then it went off again. And she couldn't get it to shut off. And so she sat on it. So you could still hear it. It was just muffled. And every time it got quiet, you'd hear this thing. And people start, and I think it started getting louder. I think and maybe mine does that on my phone. It gets louder if you don't shut it off. And, and she just sat there and watched and listened to this concert. It goes for like three songs with this thing constantly going. And finally, somebody turned around and said, would you please shut that off or get it out of here? And she, she did. She finally carried it out. Bless her heart. I felt bad for her, but kind of. Anyway. John, let's pick chapter 8 up in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I'm going to read down through verse 30 so you can settle in with this. And read along, please. I, sh I sure want you to be in the habit of bringing your Bible, even though you can read it off the screen. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. What they mean by that is the, Mos the Mosaic law said by two or three witnesses, let anything be confirmed. And they're saying, you're, you're the only one bearing witness of yourself. Uh, therefore, it's not valid testimony. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So there's two. <laughs> they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have also known my father. You would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. 
Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Remember, he is speaking these words to the Jews. I I think I've said this, this is the third week in a row, but please remember this. Everybody Jesus spoke to were the Jews. He didn't go to the Gentile world, practically everybody. He had encounters with Samaritans. He had encounters with uh, uh, a handful of Gentiles. But where he went, he ministered to Israel. So when it says the Jews, it's always talking here about the Pharisees, the Jewish authorities. These are the ones who are taking him on. We've covered this. Go back and listen to the last few weeks in this. I guess it's a series on John. (laughs) It just kind of turned out that way. Uh, But the people, by and large, are very fond of Jesus, and they are much inclined to believe he's the Messiah. The Pharisees are very resistant to it. You have to understand, I have, uh, boy, I read some of the things the Pharisees say. I I may have said this before. I I thank God that I didn't live back then. I think the biggest danger I would have had, would have been in during that time, would to, be, to fall in with the Pharisees. Not because I'm legalistic about behavior, but because I can tend to be a legal, little legalistic about the Scripture itself. And they were, boy, how, how would you answer? Look, he did these things on the Sabbath. It's work. If he's, it's such an easy question for me to ask. There's six other days you could have healed these people. Why do it on the Sabbath just to rub our noses in it? But Jesus had his reasons, right? Anyway, the, the, the not-so-admirable quality, and this will show up in chapter 10 or 11, 11, I think, maybe 10, where the Pharisees realized that Jesus actually might be the Messiah. And even if he's not, he's doing so many things and speaking so well that there is a very real possibility that the people, all the people, are going to hail him as the Messiah. And all they can think of is, if that happens, Rome is going to step on our necks. Because we have this kind of like freedom now. This was Rome's deal. They came in, they conquered a people, and then basically says, go on with your life exactly the way you're living, just pay your taxes, and don't cause any trouble. No rebellion. We're all going to be good. But if all of a sudden the Jews start getting excited, saying, we have a king, and and, uh, Caesar's not our king anymore, then here comes the Roman legion, and they're going to stomp them. And uh, not only that, they're going to, so they're going to lose whatever autonomy they have. And this is very precious to the Pharisees, because they're the ruling class. 
So this is, they had ulterior motives here. It wasn't just a pure quest for truth. So they were legalistically disinclined to believe in him. They were selfishly disinclined to believe in him. And yet when he got to this point, some of them began to believe. And interestingly, he's not bothering to offer them a whole lot of defense. He just continues to speak to them about who he is, where he's from. Uh, They just want him to come out. Let me back up here. You know, Jesus, while he was in this world, specifically during his three years of earthly ministry, this is what we're reading about, looking at, he lived as a man, right? His identity was God the Son, but he did not walk this earth as God the Son. He walked this earth as the Son of Man, but he was sinless man, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, He did not operate as God the Son. He operated as a man, fully human, but without the sin nature and without succumbing to temptation. And he's having this conversation with Jews who want him to just come out and say whether or not he is the Messiah. And he makes these bold claims. They start by challenging the authority of these claims. Hey, you're, you're testifying of yourself. He says, it ain't just me. It's my father. My father is testifying of me also. That's how I'm able to do the works that you see. The problem is you don't know my father and you don't know me. And one of these days, it's going to dawn on you. You're going to look for me, but at that point, it'll be too late. Because if you don't believe in me now, you'll die in your sin. And he continues to make these incredibly bold claims. Again, never quite bothering to defend himself before the Jewish authorities. The thing is that, you remember in the last chapter, they, they sent the, uh, the Pharisees sent some of the officers from the temple to arrest Jesus. Go get this guy. We want to question him. And they came back empty-handed. Remember this? And, uh, and they said, what, where is he? Why have you come back without him? And you remember what they said? No one ever spoke like this man. And the, and, and the Pharisees are furious. Well, you got, you got snookered by this guy. We send you out to arrest him, and you come back practically a disciple of his. Now here they are facing him down, and the sheer boldness and the power of his proclamations are getting to them. Where does this kind of boldness come from? Jesus wasn't standing before them boldly thinking, I can snap my fingers and reduce you guys to ashes because I'm God. That wasn't it at all. His boldness, his fearlessness came from knowing that God was with him. Verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. Jesus' confidence was rooted in his conviction that the Father was always with him. Boy, how many of you know, uh, if you've got a big, strong friend with you, you're a lot less afraid when you walk into a hostile situation. And God knew, or Jesus knew that God the Father was always with him. And the conviction that God was always with him was rooted in knowing that he always did what was pleasing to the Father. That's the hang-up for us, isn't it? Go back to King Asa for a second. His depression, his anger, his pouting looks to me like was the result of believing he had fallen out of favor with God. That's not exactly what the prophet said, if you'll look back. He said, you've done foolishly. 
He told them exactly what he did wrong. Basically say, why didn't you just do what you did 25 years ago? You trusted God, you prayed, and he fought the battle for you. Why did you hire your enemy to fight with you this time? You've acted foolishly. God is always watching. You didn't happen to catch God on a good day 25 years ago, and this is what he's acting like. I don't know if he's going to hear me again. He says, you don't have to get God's attention. His eyes are running to and fro throughout the earth, so he can, he's actively looking for somebody to show himself strong to. You've done foolishly, so from here on, you will have wars. That was it. That's what he said. He didn't say God is against you. He didn't say you've lost the favor. He didn't say you're going to die in your sin. He says you're going to have wars. What does that mean? Why? Because when there was a war, when there was pressure... When there was 25 years of peace, Asa was pursuing God. Now, if you go back 25 years before, the, the last time he had sought God for, for military help, they pressed in. Again, it wasn't a long, desperate prayer. It was a faith-filled prayer. He trusted God. But then you get, you get in the habit of not fighting. 25 years go by with no outside attacks. You get lazy, and then all of a sudden a war comes. And instead of saying, we know how to handle this, it's more like, oh, no! What do we do now? Because it's been so long. Do you remember that verse? Is it in uh, Judges? Where, uh, you know, when God is, uh, or is it in Joshua? Uh, when, when they inhabit the, the, the land of promise, it says God uh, uh, was removing the enemies little by little, not all at once, because he didn't want the children of Israel to forget how to make war. The generation that had not yet known war. He wanted to keep that edge sharp. And so what the prophet basically was saying was, if the only way to keep you utterly dependent on God is to keep the enemy right there at the gate, that's what you're going to have. It's just going to, God will allow whatever is necessary to keep you depending on him. So that's what we need to be cultivating, this dependence on him. So anyway, he's got this anger, this depression, because he feels God has abandoned him, that God is mad at him, that he no longer has access to God, and that's why it's recorded. He didn't even seek God when he was sick in his feet. Asa probably didn't think he had a leg to stand on. Now, we might know, again, theologically, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus said that, right? Uh, but when we do not always do what pleases the Father, guess who's right there whispering in our ear? The accuser. And just how the, how the Pharisees, you know, Jesus is making these claims about himself. And they, you know what they kept asking? Who are you? Who do you think you are? A little later they say, who, who, who do you make yourself out to be? Because then he goes on, and we're not going to get to it tonight, it's getting too late. He goes on and starts talking about Abraham. And when he says, uh, he who believes in me will never die, they're like, now we know you're crazy, or you've got a demon. Because Abraham is dead. The prophets are dead. And you're saying, if we believe in you, you won't, uh, we won't die? And he, that's when he says, I'm telling you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. And that's when, <laughs> no more discussion, they start picking up rocks to stone him. These are some amazing claims he's making. They kept saying, who are you? And when we go to God in our times of need, I need healing. I need a financial miracle. I need a relationship restored. 
I need a loved one saved. The devil saying, who, do you, who are you? Who are you to come boldly before the throne? Jesus said, I know the Father's always, always with me because I always do what's pleasing to him. And the devil can take that verse and say, do you always do what's pleasing to him? No. Then why do you think God's with you? Sometimes we do better than at other times. But I know this guy who always does what, the, what pleases the Father. Always did and always does. You know who it is? It's Jesus. And we are in him. This is what is glorious about what we are reading in Galatians on Sunday morning. Is there value? Is there importance in pleasing the Father with our lifestyle? There absolutely is. Are we going to be rewarded? It says in heaven we'll be rewarded for the deeds of the flesh. That it's all going to be tested. And only what we've done for him, for the kingdom, will remain. Everything else, good, bad, and indifferent, is going to burn But even when we do what pleases God, when we build this building, you know, Paul says the the deeds of the flesh, not necessarily rank sin, but the deeds of the flesh, they're wood, hay, and stubble. And the things we do in the spirit and the things we do for the kingdom, this is gold, silver, and precious stones, the whole pile set on fire, and what remains is our reward. This is the picture that Paul draws. But even when we are building this house with, uh, with gold, silver, and precious stones, we have to understand that that adds nothing to the cross. It adds nothing to what Jesus Christ did to secure our salvation. It adds nothing to the qualifications we need to receive the promise. When we look at the promises of the Old Testament and how they were, they were ultimately rooted in the faithfulness of God, but there were all these conditions And when Jesus said that, there's the ultimate condition. God is always with me because I always please the Father. I can't say that. I would love to, but I know I don't always please the Father. Just about every day I could give you a specific example of something I did that wasn't pleasing to the Father. Could you? All right. And how would that have sounded if Jesus said, I know God is with me because I mostly please the Father? It would have sounded silly. But because he always pleased the Father, always pleases the Father, and because I am in him, God is able, willing, eager to look at me as if I always please him. So, guess what? What does that mean? It means I can be bold. Bold before him, bold before you, bold before the world. Certainly bold in the face of Satan. Jesus, in this passage, makes it as clear as he ever does. This is what's so beautiful about the Gospel of John. I can remember as a young believer talking to somebody, and I've read this a hundred times since then. If you give somebody a Bible, tell them to start with John. And I can remember as a young believer trying to read John, thinking, man, this is confusing. Practically, well, certainly to me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were much easier to understand. 
the language in John. It's so, there's so, some mystical stuff here. But I'll tell you what. The reason it's so important is because any, anybody that says Jesus never claimed divinity, never claimed to be God, didn't read John chapter 8. I mean, it, good night. He comes out. He, he's, it, and really, that's what John is about. It's about the divinity of Christ, his identity as God the Son. But when you talk about the, the, the necessity of salvation, I don't know if Jesus ever spells it out more than he does here. If you do not believe in me, you will die in your sin. That's pretty straight, isn't it? I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know, and I mean know, that you are in him, and that since you are in him, the Father sees you as pleasing to him? Once again, our decisions and the way we live are important. They absolutely are important. It just doesn't make us right before God. We absolutely should make it our aim to live in a manner that honors him. And just as importantly, we make it our aim to live in a manner that represents him to the world around us. Because remember, it's not just about living the gospel, it's about preaching the gospel. We preach it with our lives. But our acceptance, our right standing with him is 100% based on the truth that we are in him and he has finished that work. Again, rewards in heaven for our works in the flesh, but here and now, the way we enjoy his blessings is by faith in his promises. Those we have, God has made promises. We access those by faith, believing that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Since those, the requirements are all met in Christ, and I am in Christ, I have fulfilled the requirements. The requirements are fulfilled on my behalf. Therefore, if I need something, or if I desire to stand before somebody, I do not have to worry about my personal failures and imperfections. I repent, I drive on, and I thank him for the forgiveness he says is already mine, and I know that I have not suffered any loss of standing before him. Because if I think that, that means I thought my standing before him depended on my goodness in the first place. It is 100% dependent on his goodness. And thank God it is. Stand up with me. When I make this my healing confession, I've told you before, I say essentially the same thing over my body at least once a day, sometimes two or three times a day. And one of the things that I open up with is, is I'm thankful, God, that it is because of the finished work of Jesus and only because of the finished work of Jesus that healing belongs to me. It's not clean living. It's not exercise. It's not stewardship of the body. Are those things important? Yes, they are. are they, do they have anything to do with why I'm entitled to healing? No. That is all the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank God it is. Same thing with anything that you need that he has promised. If God says it belongs to you, it belongs to you because of what he did, not because of what you did. Now, what's the, 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 the upshot of this is, when we really grasp this, why would we live, why would we desire to live any other way than to please him? The one who's done so much for us. That's the outworking of it. We'll get to that. I think that's expressed even more beautifully in Colossians. We'll get there. Not too long from now, I don't think. Meanwhile, a couple of quick invitations for you. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. 
Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.